Today on Against the Grain. Since well before COVID, U.S. media has been in dire straits. Hedge funds demanding sky-high profits have gobbled up established newspapers, while local reporting has disappeared. Media conglomerates have laid off journalists in record numbers, gutting coverage of the misdeeds of the powerful. And yet over the last five years, as John Schloys of the News Guild, CWA, lays out, there's been a remarkable surge in labor organizing among media workers. From the studios of KPFA in Berkeley, California, this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. In recent years, a successful wave of labor organizing has come from unexpected quarters, from media and publishing workers at the New York Times, The Atlantic, Politico, The New Yorker, Ars Technica, BuzzFeed, and elsewhere. Much of that organizing has been done with the help of the News Guild, which is part of Communications Workers of America. John Schloys was elected head of the News Guild at the end of 2019. While working as a data journalist at the Los Angeles Times, he and his co-workers successfully organized the famously non-union newspaper. John, let's start with an overview of the state of media work in this country. It's not news at this point that media has been going through enormous changes over the past 20 years. How would you characterize the media landscape today? In one word, dire. Um, in the last decade, and a little just a little beyond the last decade, really since the last recession in 2007, 2008, newsroom employment um, across the United States has fallen by a little over a quarter, by 26%. Um, that has been most staggering in uh, what the Bureau of Labor Statistics uh, defines as newspaper publisher employees. So those are a lot of cases, local news outlets that have been switching to, you know, more digital platforms. But uh, since in 2008, there were 71,000 people employed in that industry. And in 2020, there were just about 31,000. So it's an astonishing drop. And you can see Um, Also drops in uh, radio broadcasting, particularly at the local level, coming down from about 5,600 employees down to 3,400 employees. And it hasn't really been um, corrected by the uh, increase in the number of digital native uh, news outlets. We represent a lot of folks in those spaces, uh, but it isn't increasing fast enough and it's not really increasing at the local level. So it's it's a pretty dire situation that we've lost, particularly in the local news markets. So many people, so many jobs, and, and by virtue, so many voices from our communities that are not being heard. And how has COVID affected that already uh, ongoing crisis? I think it's accelerated it. Right at the beginning of the pandemic in 2020, we saw a lot of, particularly news publishers, announce that they were going to have to cut staff or furlough workers, uh, meaning that they would have to take an unpaid like week every month uh, off work. Um, Some places we were able to negotiate and do like a work share agreement so that it ended up being one day a week and then they could kind of uh, get uh, state and federal unemployment assistance. But overall, it's been a careening where we've lost hundreds if not thousands of jobs since the start of the pandemic because um, for a lot of publishers and and particularly for the, the newspaper industry, there hasn't been a quick enough transition to um, get revenue from online um, platforms. So for instance, uh, not getting money from Google and Facebook is a big issue, but also not increasing the number of digital only subscribers. When, When I started in the industry more than a decade ago, we would say that for every dollar that the newspaper earned, and this was back in Arkansas, for every dollar that we earned, 90 cents of that dollar came from print advertising. And obviously the metrics are wildly different now where uh, like a place like the New York Times, for instance, brings more revenue in from digital subscribers than it does from advertising. Uh, the sort of uh, benefit there is that you actually have 
the publishers realizing that they actually have to cater more to their readers because that's where more of the revenue is coming. I think that's a good thing. The downside is that there are a lot of other people who simply can't afford a subscription to their local uh, online news website or a national news website. So they're kind of blocked out from, from coverage. Well, I'd like to ask you about that sort of existential change and threat to media that's been going on for the last several decades. You know, what what has driven it? Because obviously there has been enormous change within the media and the source of funding from traditional print advertising has changed. But at the same time, do you think it can be too easy for media companies to blame the need for cuts to journalists, cuts to workers on simply technological change in media? Oh, yeah. I remember, again, back to a decade ago, I remember um, the, the the publishers and sort of the, the top editors at the Arkansas Democrat Gazette complaining about the, the loss of the classified section. And so for folks who, uh, you know, subscribe to a newspaper maybe a decade, 20, 20 years ago, you remember that the classified section was where you found a house to rent or buy. Uh, or maybe you purchased a car through the classified section in a printed newspaper. And they would complain about uh, the fact that Craigslist had entered the market and completely disrupted it, right? This this wild website, which is kind of a tacky, darker part of the web, to be honest. But anybody could post their own ad and sell whatever they wanted or rent whatever they wanted. Um, and I remember thinking at the time, well, we could create that. There's nothing technically limiting us from creating our own uh, innovative new marketplace, uh, things to sell or rent. Um, so that, that yeah, I don't think, I think it's too limited. The bigger issues are really consolidation. You've got companies like Gannett, which merged with Gatehouse back in 2019, uh, becoming the largest news publisher in the country, owning more than 200 what we call daily newspapers, but mostly online news as well. Um, and you've got uh, Tribune Publishing, which was acquired by a vulture hedge fund, Alden Global Capital, in April of, of last year. Um, there's been a ton of consolidation, and particularly from hedge funds like Alden Global Capital, uh, which has been just hell-bent on the last decade of acquiring a, a lot of different publications. Um, they acquired uh, what is now called the East Bay Times, but used to be several different publications uh, in the Bay Area. And they've really just destroyed them. I mean, they've cut staff, you know, in the last little over a decade that they've they've worked there or owned the publications by about 75 to 80%. They've done that at the Denver Post as well. Um, and these, these hedge funds are not interested in, in news or local news. What they're interested in is really high profit margins, and they are just interesting of extracting the wealth. So the San Jose uh, Mercury News is a good example. You know, they wanted to get rid of the real, real estate. They wanted to cut the staff. They wanted to cut as many expenses as they could so they could extract as much money out, out of basically the customers, you know, whether they're uh, subscribers and readers or advertisers, and try to extract as much revenue as possible with a real short business um, sort of plan that was just a handful of years. And, and this is what we've let, been left with. So consolidation and then corporate uh, vulture hedge funds, I think are actually the, the real big problems in the industry. Does it strike you as strange that hedge funds would want to get in on news media as a source of profits? I mean, the, their expectations for what kinds of profits should come out of newspapers is incredibly high. And yet, the media traditionally has never been particularly profitable, often has been subsidized in one way or another in, in U.S. history. Does it strike you as kind of strange that Alden Global Capital is expecting to make this kind of money off of newspapers? It does. It's a it's a real question of like what their motivations are. Yeah, because as you said, for for most news publications, even in hard times, like they're they're typically just about running even. Um, a newspaper publisher told me um, not that long ago that you know we're we're all but nonprofit, <laughs> except in technically we're not nonprofit status under the IRS. We we are just barely kind of eking by. Um, and the hedge fund comes in and wants, you know, if, if they've got like a 1% or a 2% kind of like profit that they're pulling in, they want it to be double digits. They want it to be above 10%. So it is an interesting question. I think that there is probably, uh, uh, you know, if I, if I just took a couple steps forward into like their thinking, which, you know, they have, they will say publicly that they are doing this to invest in journalism and that they are, are concerned about the, the issues. But then in practice, what they do is all these cuts. And what that means for our communities is that you have less oversight. 
And so I think that's a big part of it because you, you not only have less oversight at the local governance meetings, uh, at the city council and, and, and county uh, board meetings, um, but you also have less governance and like kind of oversight and accountability for even business practices. So uh, I think that there probably is also a motivation in actually limiting the accountability and limiting the oversight uh, that exists in our country. In the last four years, there's been a flurry of campaigns in news organizations and publishing, and much of it has been led by News Guild, CWA. I wonder if you could describe some of these campaigns and and more broadly what publishing and media workers are up against. I mean, you've described the kind of cuts that are so extreme that have been taking place over the last few decades and then accelerated under COVID. Yeah, so, you know, that I kind of myself went through one of these uh, uh, moments uh, and journeys. I uh, was a, a data reporter at the Los Angeles Times starting in 2013. And in 2016, we were owned by what, what is now Tribune Publishing and now owned by Alden Global Capital, but at the time was, was called Tronc, T-R-O-N-C, which was a, a sort of dreadful name. Uh, but we were owned by a company that was based in Chicago and really had very little interest in actually making the Los Angeles Times um, a real accountability newsroom that um, really focused on trying to tell amazing stories and break a lot of really important stories in, in Southern California. They were just interested. I remember at a time there was a, the, the chairman of the board was actually interested in really getting a hold of the Oscars tickets that were supposed to go to the entertainment reporters. And there was a whole kerfuffle around that. Um, <laughs> Time and time again, they had sort of these these embarrassing things that you know became clear to us that we actually had to take a stand if we were going to try to save the Los Angeles Times. So we organized in 2017 and then voted in 2018 as as part of this like wave of unionization in the industry because we were fed up. We were tired of of seeing these cuts and we wanted some stability. We wanted some job security. We wanted pay uh, increases. A lot of people in in the news industry. Uh, don't make glamorous salaries. They, they're barely getting by. And in fact, I've seen stories recently of folks who have unionized in New Jersey at some Gannett publications, and they they have to have separate side hustles. They have to have a second job, or in some cases, actually can uh, you know have to go to the the food bank in the area because their pay is so excruciatingly low, and they haven't seen raises in in many years. So. Um, you know, there's been a, a, a sort of wild campaign where you've got, um, uh, in, in terms of total news news employees unionizing with us in the past five years since the beginning of 2018 when I joined, uh, we've had more than 5,500 workers from about 100 different news organizations unionize with us. Uh, and that's unprecedented just in the entire labor movement. Um, and it's really just enough is enough. We're sort of tired of the cuts. And this is not just the case in Southern California. This is includes three newsrooms that unionized uh, in the past couple of years in Texas, the Dallas Morning News, the Austin American Statesman, the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, and including publications in places like Wyoming or Montana. Uh, it's really all across the U.S. that we're seeing this, this movement. And as this organizing wave has taken place, how has the response been from the owners? Are there similarities in the ways that they've pushed back? Yes. For anyone who's been in a union organizing campaign, uh, you, you see the same playbook that has been around for about 70 years. Um, and, and it's really like at any industry, it's sort of interesting to do it against media workers and journalists because our thought process is to ask questions and to find a second source and to uh, get the details and then to hold people to account when they are providing uh, bad information. So we do see these things. You might have uh, noticed recently that there has been a call for the ban of what are called captive audience meetings. Um, the National Labor Relations Board General Counsel Jennifer Abruzzo has said that that she believes that they're actually in violation of the National Labor Relations Act. A captive audience meeting is basically a employee required meeting where you have to go in and you listen to either uh, a manager or an outside uh, law firm in a lot of cases, basically tell you why you shouldn't vote to unionize. And it's, it's, sort, of, it's sort of adorable to me because I, you know, uh, the question is, why are they working so hard 
to fight their own workers unionizing, whether it's in a newsroom or Starbucks uh, or Amazon. And the answer is all about control and greed. Um, companies don't want to lose control. When you unionize and every, every worker uh, that works in the private sector in this country, if you've got at least one employee, you have uh, rights to form a union. Uh, if you've got at least two employees, got at least one colleague, you've got a right to form a union here and have conversations with your colleagues about your wages, your benefits, and your working conditions, and then meaningfully change them. And then after you unionize, you have the right to sit toe-to-toe -to -toe with, with management and actually push for proposals to raise, raise your wages, to increase your retirement benefits, to improve your health care, uh, to create family leave policies. Uh, you can create whatever makes sense uh, in your workplace uh, in the bounds of the law, but you can really push for a lot of spectacular changes. And you can also push against um, these draconian job cuts that we see, especially like I talked about earlier in the news industry. I'm speaking with John Schloys. He is president of the News Guild, which is part of Communications Workers of America, which represents workers in the news media and publishing. I should say that is my union. The program is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio, and I'm Sasha Lilly. So, John, you mentioned how uh, you had been a journalist at the LA Times and how you and your colleagues got together to form a union. The LA Times had never been unionized in its 135-year history. How were you and your fellow workers able to unionize, given that history? Well, through a lot of really good conversations, um, I didn't know, I grew up in rural Arkansas, and I didn't know the first thing about uh, forming a union or how unions operated. I thought it was just like something that people who made uh, Chevrolet cars and trucks did uh, up in Detroit. I thought that was what unions were. And then, you know, you do a little bit of research on your own, which is a good journalist you have to do, right? You do a little bit of research and you realize, oh my God, we have these rights. We could do this. We could form these things. And one of the first steps, and it's really a step that you continue throughout um, building a union is you have good conversations with your colleagues. So talking to my colleague, Bettina, who, uh, was a Pulitzer Prize winning uh, reporter uh, in her 60s. She uh, was making less than a white male colleague of a similar experience level, also a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter. And that was unjust. So that was unfair. Uh, and it wasn't like, you know, she or he had like created this inequity. It was created by the company. And it was something that we desperately wanted to fix. You talk to another young reporter uh, about like Julia, who who like was upset about the healthcare plans that we had, and realizing that oh my God, these healthcare plans don't actually cover the types of things that she needs uh, to be healthy and and be a productive member of society and and a worker. Um, you talk to um, any variety of different folks in your workplace, and you realize oh my God, there are all these issues that in a lot of cases are very similar issues that we all seem to face. And until you have those conversations, you don't even realize that your colleagues have those issues and you sort of piece them together and realize, oh my God, we can fix this. And then you get buy-in uh, from your colleagues to try to create plans to fix it. You go to uh, basically the next step of filing um, union authorization cards. You do that with the National Labor Relations Board or you push for voluntary recognition and then you have an election in some cases. So we, we had a lot of really good conversations with our colleagues because at the end of the day, the union isn't some you know, third party that's based in another city, maybe in the nation's capital, but it's actually a thing and a movement that you build with your colleagues to figure out what are the issues that are most important to us and how can we collectively change them. I wonder if you could tell us about campaigns going on at some of the most established media organizations like the New York Times, what workers it's involved, and also how management responded. So um, the News Guild uh, and the workers at the New York Times, the News Guild has represented those workers for decades. Um, it is sort of in a lot of circles when, when folks are starting out their negotiations, they look at the New York Times contract for uh, as sort of the gold standard of what you can get and you can achieve uh, in, in a collective bargaining agreement. And, um, you know, about, oh, probably a decade ago, the New York Times had created a new sort of series of departments to innovate online. Um, and just in March, we had a union election for about 600 workers at the New York Times that uh, are called themselves the New York Times Tech Guild. 
Um, but they are a brand new created bargaining unit because these these workers voted more than uh, 80% yes in favor of unionizing. And they're like software developers, project managers, designers. Uh, if, if, if you've ever used the crossword puzzle app that the New York Times puts out or been to the website and looked at, for instance, election results or the COVID-19 case count tracker, uh, or you've used the New York Times app on your, your, your iPhone or your Android device, those workers build that software. They are literally the ones who are innovating the New York Times uh, technology so that we can get better access to, to news stories and information. Uh, they announced their, their campaign last year. And management, uh, even though they have a long history of representing uh, and, and knowing that the, the workers, 1,300 workers at the New York Times are unionized, management acted very aggressively uh, against them. So they had captive audience meetings where they pulled them in and told them why they shouldn't uh, unionize. Uh, they uh, they scolded some workers for you know switching their, their online avatars to the New York Times Tech Guild uh, insignia. Uh, they uh, got really aggressive and sent out like mailers to every single worker telling them why they shouldn't unionize. It was a very strange uh, behavior, but but not totally unexpected because they really don't want to lose control and having 100% control over the entire tech operation at the New York Times. But the tech workers you know, had a lot of really important things to push. They want pay equity. They want men and women and people of color and white people to be a paid equitably based on their experience level and their job position. Um, they want to increase the diversity in the ranks uh, in the Times Tech uh, uh, unit, where we've got underrepresented groups more actively hired and interviewed and brought into the workplace culture so that we can actually advance the workplace. So there is wild sort of anti-union campaign uh, driven by uh, the company to fight the workers, they, they ultimately succeeded because they had those good conversations with each other. Do you think that media organizations are in some ways more vulnerable to generating public support in favor of a union since they, their public image is something that they sell papers, so to speak, on? You know, it's possible. I think um, one, of the, one of the big changes probably in the last, you know, five five or six years is that so many journalists are on Twitter and on Facebook and we're active on social media and when you know your your friend who works at the Dallas Morning News reporter working there covering maybe City Hall or the state goes on Twitter and talks about how they're unionizing and how they're going to fight to increase the mileage reimbursement rate or the paid parental leave you know you take notice if you're in a newsroom that's not unionized and because so many journalists are on Twitter they see that happening and so then it sort of spreads like wildfire and you have really good questions that they ask. So the folks at Politico, which is a digital only um, newsroom, mostly based here in Washington, DC, uh, they saw a lot of these campaigns and were thinking, wow, we have things that we should improve in our newsroom too. You know, So let me talk to some of my colleagues or my friends who work at these other newsrooms and see what the process was like and see what things that they're fighting for. And you realize, oh my God, we can do this. We can, we can get this done. But yeah, it's I think sparked by the fact that so many journalists are very public. And then I think it, it looks poorly on the employer and it could tarnish their brand if uh, you know, their subs subscribers or supporters see them as being anti-union. We saw some of that also at The New Yorker, you know, which is a, a long-storied magazine uh, when they were aggressively union busting and, and fighting the workers who were wanting basic things like, um, like decent wages uh, to raise people up, especially if they were living in New York City where the cost of living is, is through the roof. Um, the, the, the company kind of realized that there was a ton of public support uh, for these journalists and other workers that they needed to chill out and actually agree to what the workers were proposing at the table. Have media workers had any more leverage? Uh, recently, there's been a fair amount of talk of labor shortage, allowing workers to have more leverage, to walk off the job, to potentially unionize. Has that applied to media workers as well? I, I think so. I mean, you know, just the fact that we've lost, um, you know, about a quarter of the media workers in the United States in the past, like, 12 years, I think that that has given us more leverage and more power because there have been so many cuts at, at all types of newsrooms. You know, it's not like 
you cut the education reporter and then, you know, the religion reporter picks it up. I mean, there just isn't education coverage anymore um, if that's where the cut's been made. So you do have more power and more leverage because of those dynamics. But I think also, too, I mean, one of the things that I truly believe is that every worker, regardless of, of what type of industry they're in, has, has more power than they know. Um, you know, if, if the company is highly profitable and raking in a lot of money and the executives are well compensated, you have the power to work with your colleagues to actually improve and raise your own standard of living. Um, and I think that that's true and just in any industry, especially now. John Schloes is my guest. We'll return with him in just a moment. You're listening to Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly, and today I'm joined by John Schloes. He is president of News Guild, which is part of the Communications Workers of America, representing workers in publishing and the news media. He's a former journalist for the Los Angeles Times, and I'm Sasha Lilly. So the News Guild has been doing a pretty phenomenal job of organizing workers in uh, news media and publishing over the last four or five years. I wanted to know how you dealt with building collective power, especially in situations where you might have, a, a Gannett comes to mind here. On the one hand, there are some places that have been unionized for decades, some newsrooms, and then others that are not at all, and others where there might be a new campaign to unionize. How do you build collective power across those sorts of divisions? So, uh, you know, we have a saying sort of in unions, right, that we're stronger together. And the more that we're together, the more that we're able to coordinate uh, as workers, you know, even if we're spread across the entire country, um, the better and the more power that we have. So a, a good example of that, like at Gannett is, for instance, um, last year, um, uh, there was uh, a couple of different units that formed uh, the Bergen Record, uh, organized with some other publications in Bergen, New Jersey, and then Asbury Park uh, also unionized, uh, all under the News Guild of New York. Um, they've joined uh, some other Gannett publications that are represented by the News Guild um, across the country. And some of cases, like in Detroit, have been uh, there and represented uh, by the Guild for, for decades, but also in Rochester and Utica in upstate New York. So in New York, what you have is actually um, the Rochester and Utica folks going to the table with the folks in Bergen and Asbury Park, um, all at the same time going to the table and basically coming up with proposals to be uh, jointly sort of negotiated to say, you know, here's what we think should be the wages. Here's what we think should be the retirement and healthcare plans. Here's what we think for the holidays or the time off or the de definition of a work week. So you have them all actually sharing proposals, communicating about when they're going to the table and what they're agreeing to, what they're seeing from the company. And it creates sort of an eye-popping uh, view. I remember uh, last year, um, a proposal that was agreed to, I can't even remember what the subject was, but a proposal was agreed to in Phoenix, Arizona, at the Arizona Republic, which unionized a little over two and a half years ago. Uh, that proposal was then taken uh, by the workers and shared to the folks at the Austin American Statesman down in Austin, Texas. And they proposed it at the table uh, to the same company. And I remember a worker describing the lawyer, basically steam it came out of his ears. How dare you propose this here at this table? But they're like, well, you agreed to it over there in Phoenix. So let's agree to it here. So I think it's really important to actually just provide that level of deep coordination. Uh, and we can do that when we're, when we're working together. 
What uh, employers do you think have been the worst in resisting unionization and worker demands in publishing and media? Oh, well, you know, do we have a week to talk about this? <laughs> the worst of the worst probably are, uh, if I could pick two out of a, a large handful, um, would be Block Communications. Um, and they own a couple of, of couple of publications, the Toledo Blade in Ohio and the Pittsburgh uh, Post-Gazette in Pennsylvania. Um, they have hired an outside law firm that is based in the South, very far from, from these areas. Um, who just have an effort, all they care about is, is union busting. They just want to try to break the union. And so they wear the journalists out. They basically show up to the table. Um, you know, the journalists and the workers will actually typically move a lot, you know, say, here's our starting position. Well, here's our next position. Well, here's our next position. And these lawyers will just say, nope, we don't agree. Nope, we don't agree. So it's really, you know, what we call surface level bargaining. It's not really engaging in good faith in bargaining. Uh, and there are consequences to that under federal law. That's a that's a violation of federal law. You have to show up and bargain in good faith. But I think it's been really disappointing to see these storied institutions and these really dedicated journalists basically be be treated so poorly by block communications. The other example is is Alden Global Capital, which owns um, uh, several newspapers under Media News Group. You know the what is the East Bay Times now, but Southern California News Group the Denver Post, the St. Paul Pioneer Press in Minnesota, a lot of different publications. They also then acquired Tribune Publishing. San Jose Mercury News. The Merc, yep. Um, and a lot of smaller uh, publications that are not unionized, like in Chico and, and other parts of California. They really have a hold there. Um, but then they bought the Tribune Publishing Group last year, and that includes the Chicago Tribune, the Allentown Morning Call in Pennsylvania, the Hartford Current, America's longest-running uh, newspaper. Uh, the Orlando Sentinel, all of those have unionized, and they are just really, really against um, pretty basic requests for you know increases to wages, to holidays, to to paid time off, to uh, family leave. So th they're probably the worst, and you know it's it's an ideological thing for them. One is a hedge fund. All the global capital is a vulture hedge fund that just isn't interested in actually running a business productively, and the other one is a a family that I think has become the Block family in, in Toledo and in, in Pittsburgh that's become disillusioned and disconnected from the benefits and the sort of guardian nature of, of running a news publication in a community. We, we have to be accountable to our community. And when we fight our own journalists, as they're doing, it, it's, it's, it's a real disservice to our democracy. We've been talking a fair amount about workplaces that are in traditional media, but I wanted to ask you about BuzzFeed and the struggles that the workers there are contending with. Right, so um, BuzzFeed News unionized uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, one of, uh, it's a you know, digital only publication. It's really got a hold in terms of um, getting news and information out to uh, sort of millennial or Gen Z generations. Um, they're award-winning. I mean, they've, they've won a Pulitzer for their, their, their work uh, in the past year. And they, um, the company announced, uh, I guess, about three weeks ago that they wanted to do a pretty significant cut, get rid of the investigations desk and and cut uh, a lot of very essential different aspects of reporting. So the workers were very upset about this um, back in December when the company went public with an, internet, an, uh, an IPO, um, initial public offering. They basically, on that day, the workers did a walkout to really set the tone that uh, we are going to be respected here, and um, we are going to be heard. Now, it, from reporting, what I understand is that a lot of these um, shareholders actually don't even like the idea that BuzzFeed would be producing factual, uh, in-depth uh, reporting and news. Uh, they prefer that it just focused on memes and, and, and sort of like uh, listicles, if you, if you will. So the workers have been aggressively pushing back on that. You know, they've been bargaining a contract since they unionized and um, they took a strike authorization vote just, just about two weeks ago, saying very clearly that if bargaining doesn't improve, we will withhold our labor um, to empower us to get to a fair contract. Well, and that kind of brings up this broader question of to what degree are workers, uh, especially those organizing with News Guild, CWA, 
take on this bigger question of the quality of journalism, especially those working for private companies whose main focus is turning a profit? Yeah. You know, when you look at the mission statements for a lot of these journalists when they unionize, typically every single one of them, when they announce their campaign, uh, they come forward with a statement. And, and typically every single one of them says that we're doing this to safeguard our publication and our newsroom for our community and to protect our jobs. Uh, all of these all of these newsrooms, whether they're, you know, traditional like kind of newspaper uh, newsrooms or digital only like Politico and BuzzFeed News, they all deeply care about their jobs. They care about the organization. They want it to be better. And they've got a lot of really smart ideas on how it can actually be better. So they fight to unionize so that they can be toe-to-toe -to -toe with management at the table and present very clearly the proposals that will make the organization better. It's a question for the company if they actually will listen to them. Um, in a lot of cases, they are pretty resistant. But we've seen you know, huge benefits. For instance, um, there's been a long-running campaign to uh, get a decent mileage reimbursement rate for journalists, like photographers who spend a lot of time on the road driving uh, for different Gannett publications. And uh, Gannett announced uh, a few months ago that they were going to extend uh, the IRS uh, mileage reimbursement rate to workers, but uh, they said that they would extend it to um, only the non-unionized workers. It was a, a union busting move, but that only existed, right? Like that's only happening because of this wave of, of unionization. And now we're seeing actually the company realizing, okay, yeah, we've got to get this to uh, the unionized workers too. We're looking like fools. And yeah, you are. If you're fighting journalists, it's not a good look. Well, obviously, people in workplaces are struggling with the employers they have and the kind of funding model that those employers are based on. But the News Guild being a national organization, does it have any position on public funding of the news or strategies to make news media not dependent on profit-driven, union-busting entities? Yeah, we do. Um, you only have to go back, you know, a couple hundred years to look at uh, the need for journalism if we were going to create this new sort of like democracy. And if people have the ability to vote for their leaders and for legislation, they need to be informed. And that requires you having uh, a free press. And that's why right at the top of the Bill of Rights, the First Amendment says that we have to have a free press. Um, and, and that's rare for our country. But you know, to kind of fulfill that need, very early on, the Postal Service was actually created in essence to um, distribute news, periodicals and newspapers um, at, a, at a huge loss, I mean, the public was basically paying for a lot of this distribution so that the citizens could actually be informed when they go into the ballot box and actually be part of their, an active part of their community. So we have a history of public funding. It's just not been that good. So obviously it's happening with the Corporation for Public Broadcasting uh, and a few other places, but we, we do need to do that. Um, there are a couple of pieces of legislation. I think the most interesting one at the federal level is the Local Journalism Sustainability Act, which basically looks at any um, local news publication, whether it's online only, broadcast, or, or sort of print hybrid model. And if you employ local journalists, the federal government would give those organizations a tax credit for every single local journalist that they employ. I think that's a hugely important piece of legislation. Uh, that's got bipartisan support that I think should pass. There's also um, SB 911 uh, in uh, the state of California that is looking at potentially creating a, a public funding source. Um, we, I think, you know, as journalists, what we want is to make sure, and I think that the public wants this as well, so we want to make sure that any publicly supported journalism is free of partisan influence. So we can't have Republicans or Democrats or anyone partisan making a, a decision in terms of which projects get covered, who gets covered. What we really need to do is make sure that we're focusing, in, in my belief, on jobs. So if we can support local news jobs, then it then it makes it easier for us to actually get the work done that we need to, which is being accountable to the communities where the local journalists exist. John Schloss is my guest. He's a union organizer and now president of the News Guild, which is part of Communications Workers of America. The News Guild represents workers in the news media and in publishing. 
News Guild allows all members to elect national officers, and you were elected president of the News Guild at the end of 2019. But most unions actually don't allow their members to elect their national officers. What do you think is the impact of union democracy on a union's ability to organize aggressively? Well, as I said before, the union cannot be a third party. The, the union has to be the workers, and it needs to be very representative of, representative of the workers, right? So the issues that we put at the bargaining table need to be issues that are important to the workers who are bargaining those contracts. And we also uh, very openly believe in open bargaining. So inviting your colleagues in to watch the bargaining process happen. In a lot of cases right now, that's happening on Zoom. But I think from a structural standpoint, when the American Newspaper Guild was founded in the 1930s, it was essential for every member to have a voice and vote in electing union leadership. So to this day, um, many, many, many decades later, uh, every single dues-paying member of the News Guild has the ability to vote in elections. I, I think it's essential because it allows for um, that democracy, for that, that, that member to be directly impacting uh, the choice for who they pick. I also think it's really important to have competitive elections. Um, I've never done um, a, a sort of campaign and sort of election style before 2019. I was uh, not super comfortable doing it uh, as, a, as a journalist. <laughs> so obviously these aren't like a political platform that I'm running on. It's, uh, it's things that we're running on to fix and improve the union. But I think a competitive election is also really essential. So you've seen that happen at the Teamsters recently where they all had uh, the ability to vote. And you saw UAW have a referendum uh, where the members decided that they do want every member to have a, a voice uh, in electing their leadership. I think it's great. I think it really connects the workers to the union leadership, but you need competitive elections and you also need to make sure that you really try to um, increase the amount of turnout. So even in my elections, the turnout was was still low. Um, and so that's, that's I think, a, a sign that we actually have a lot more work to do to make sure that the members and the workers are engaged in their own union by electing their people, but also in the day-to-day -day operations. One criticism that unions receive from the left is that they represent a sector of society, but don't represent the needs of the working class as a whole, and often are carving out benefits just for one particular group of people. How do you respond to such a critique? You know, again, like you know, I grew up rural Arkansas, didn't know anything about unions, didn't have a family uh, that benefited from unions. But there are millions of Americans who have uh, a family uh, that are part of a family that have benefited from unions. So I think one of the, the beautiful things uh, of forming a union, and again, that's the workers deciding what they think is most important and pushing for it, is that it actually raises the standards. So if you look at uh, the pay of people who are represented by unions compared to uh, people who aren't represented by unions, on average, it is higher uh, because they push for better wages. So, you know, you can take uh, an industry like uh, Delta, for instance, and the airlines and flight attendants, right? Delta is uh, airlines is, is one of the, the last airlines that is not unionized from a flight attendant standpoint. But you know, those workers have 100% benefited from all the other major airlines having flight attendants who are unionized. Those standards have been raised for them directly through that effort. In our industry, uh, we also see the, the need to uh, push for equal pay, which is an issue uh, that affects every single worker in every single industry, whether they're unionized or not. In California, there's this beautiful thing called the California Equal Pay Act. And you can legally push uh, the company uh, to pay women and people of color equitably based on their experience, which should just be a foundation of our democracy, right? I mean, it's equality. Uh, and you know, when you form a union, you can request information, uh, figure out if there are pay inequities. A lot of our newsrooms run pay studies every single uh, year. And they try to improve uh, the equity so that we actually get closer to making sure that women are paid equal to men and people of color are paid equal to white people if they're doing the same work and the same level of experience. And so there's a lot of things that we can do as unions to actually raise the bar and raise the standard and think of new ideas that positively benefit every other worker. From your vantage point, um, seeing what's happened over the last at least two decades of the unraveling of the traditional model of news media, and then 
uh, of course, going through the crisis of the pandemic and this constant pressure to yield profits to many media organizations. From that perspective, the perspective you have right now, do you have thoughts on what the next decade is going to look like for media as a whole and the place of media workers in it? Well, I'm an optimist. Um, So even though we've entered this moment now uh, through a ton of decline in terms of the number of journalists in this country, particularly at the local level, I'm an optimist because there are um, students and people coming out of out of school every single day who want to become a journalist. And it's this like sort of bug that some of us have in our head where we just get really excited about the idea that we can go talk to a, a total stranger and, and find out maybe they've got an interesting story to tell that, that other people might want to hear or consume. We, we sort of, I don't know how it happens, but there is just this part of society where these workers have that bug inside their head where they just want to tell the stories of their communities. And that is such a righteous sort of thing to have, to want a mission, to want to make your community better by actually sharing and facilitating the free flow of information, of stories, articles, ideas. Um, That makes our democracy, our communities so much stronger. And, And so, actually seeing the thousands of media workers and journalists unionize over the past several years has has really inspired me that we can actually make a stand and improve our communities by making a stand inside our own organizations, by holding them accountable so that we can then continue to do the work of holding uh, those in power accountable and being the mirror and the reflection to our communities that they so desperately need. Well, what's striking when you look at those campaigns over the last few years that have taken place within media is how anomalous they've been in many ways. I mean, we've heard about these maverick organizing campaigns, Starbucks and so on, but the general trend for organized labor continues to be one of decline of membership in unions. Do you think there are lessons that could be taken from the experience of the News Guild and media workers that could be applied to labor as a whole and workers as a whole in the U.S.? Or do you think some of the reasons for the kind of success that media workers have had might be particular to some of the circumstances of uh, news media workers? Well, you know, uh, it's been a funny thing. It's like, yeah, definitely the most recent statistics from the Labor Department show that union representation is on decline. But boy, and I, you know, I'm in a weird circle, but I just get the sense even from talking to people who are outside of the labor movement, there's a sense and a feeling that there is a union movement happening in this country. And I think a lot of it is really due to the fact that you have so many media workers having unionized they understand when they're going out to cover a story, whether it's about Starbucks or like a solar farm that's being uh, built in the desert in California, they start to like kind of reorient their minds. Instead of just getting quotes from the CEO of the company, they actually want to talk to the workers, the folks, everyday Americans who are on the ground actually doing the job and uplift their voices in their own reporting, which I think is a a big reason why we're seeing so many uh, of these these campaigns at at Amazon and Starbucks actually be uh, present in in a lot of different news. But there aren't really, you know, it's not a magical thing. It's unionizing is not this uh, uh, magical, impossible thing. It's actually actually quite easy. And it really just takes, those conversations with your colleagues. What are the issues that we're facing? And then how might we change those issues? How might we improve our workplaces and improve our lives in the process? Uh, Any worker can ask those questions to their colleagues and and just figure out meaningful ways to make changes, even without a union, right? Just putting pressure in the right places and uh, advancing things so that we we raise the bar for everyone. Um, I think that's, that's the key and having that kind of belief and optimism. And then you know, I think for most of the labor movement, it's it's really important to actually like do a lot of self-criticism. So for, for presidents and either locals or in international unions, it's important for us to do a, a deep dive and look at like what we're doing here to advance uh, the power of our members and of working people and, and constantly be going back to 
what the worker issues are and the struggles. And then I always think of my fight and my role uh, in our union is to bring gasoline to the fire that the workers build. Uh, and so if there's an issue and a dispute in Miami, how can we how can we support the folks at the Miami Herald? If there's an issue and dispute in the BuzzFeed News Group, how can we help the journalists and media workers there? Um, that's our role is how do we actually uh, help these people build their own power? Because once you start building that power and then those workers use it, it is unstoppable. Let me end by asking you about the particular challenges of organizing younger workers and more diverse workers as workers as a whole in the U.S. are certainly becoming a more diverse group of people. When you were elected to uh, the presidency of the News Guild, it was hailed as sort of a generational victory in that you were 30 years younger than the person you were running against. Do you think that one can sort of overstate these generational questions? Or do you think that there are things that must happen for unions to be effective, given the shifting sands of U.S. society? Anyone from any age category is likely a worker, right? (laughs) Unless you're retired, you're in the force, right? Either you're in school or you're retired. And then that's basically, but even people who are in school, right, are actively working in a lot of cases. So I think it's really important for us, uh, no matter where we sit on the age spectrum, to realize that our diversity is our strength. And that's not just a diversity in terms of race and ethnicity, but it's also a diversity in age. Because there are people who have so much more experience than me, who have been at these fights for decades longer than I have, who have a lot of meaningful information and ideas to share. And then there are younger workers who uh, maybe have just a ton of spitfire energy Uh, And those two uh, groups combined is a lethal weapon uh, into actually making meaningful change. So it's important for us to actually make sure that uh, our unions look like our membership and are representative of our membership uh, in in industry, in age and race and ethnicity and in gender. And, you know, it's not just a top down thing, right? Like, you know, I can say that as the union, but I think what is really essential is that we we make sure that there's a path for people to actually come up through leadership uh, so that there is uh, a constant cycle of of new ideas and of the best ideas, you know, built through kind of competitive elections. And so if you're a worker that's in a union right now and you don't like the way that the union is is being uh, run, get involved. You can run, you can be a shop steward, you can run for a local president, and you can run for international or national president or, or any position in between. Uh, and you should. John Schleus, thank you so much. Oh my God, thanks so much for having me. I've been speaking with John Schleus. He is a union organizer, former journalist at the Los Angeles Times, and he's president of the News Guild, part of Communications Workers of America, which represents workers in the news, media, and publishing. And I should say that is also my union, CWA. You've been listening to Against the Grain. I'm Sasha Lilly. Thanks so much for listening. And please tune in again next time.